This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I am Jeff Klein. You are Anne Greenhall. Yeah. And together, we form Leadership in Action. Tonight, as you know, as our listeners know, but if you're just tuning in, I'll, I'll clue you in. We're playing back portions of our annual leadership conference, and it's a conference that is held every year in June. It was June 6th this year, and next year, if you're planning your 2019 calendar, it's on June 12th. We'd love to have uh, see you here in Philadelphia for it. And this conference, every every conference is about leadership. There's usually a particular theme. Um, this year, we called the conference Leading in a World of Seismic Shifts. And, you know, I, I think for Kelly Martin, um, the talk that she gave, I mean, it, it represents one of the, the great shifts that, that we're seeing right now within the, the national and global landscape and, and hopefully a shift which, which is very permanent. Yeah. Right. And, and that is around the issue of sexual harassment. Um, Kelly, is, as we've mentioned, is the chief of fire and aviation management at Yosemite National Park. Um, and, and the reason, you know, we've had, and the interesting thing is we, we've had a number of firefighters, uh, mm -hmm. speak at the leadership conference right. over the years, have a long relationship with wildland fire, um, as well as the national park service, the fire department of New York, the fire department in San Diego. Right. Um, so, but what was interesting here is we invited Kelly, not for her fire experience, mm -hmm. right? Um, but we invited Kelly... Uh, because of the role that she has played uh, in testifying before Congress about sexual harassment that she'd experienced in her years with the National Park Service. She called her presentation how speaking up can be a turning point for culture change. And, uh, well, th there's nothing more I can really say to that other than, than please listen. Uh, we'll be back to share some of our thoughts at the end of Kelly's talk. In uh, 2016... Uh, September 21st to be exact, I boarded an airplane from Fresno, California, uh, bound for DC. In less than 24 hours, I'd find myself seated before Congress. I felt like the full 34 years of my career was on the line. Uh, I was about to testify about my own personal experiences with sexual harassment and how I have, I have remained silent and how, I, uh, how a lot of women, including myself, really felt like this was taboo. This was something that we couldn't talk about. I got on the plane. I, I, I'll just tell you that I spent a lot of time contemplating whether or not this was something that I was willing to risk my own personal reputation and my entire career on. Um, so this was a very, very difficult decision for me to make. But I think it's very important that, that I'm here before you to actually put a real face to the Me Too movement, uh, to the Time's Up. But again, this was even, even before this movement. This was back in 2016. I get on the airplane. I settle into my seat, and I'm kind of up front, and I can still kind of see the door. And as soon as that door closed, I had this feeling that 
this was the most committing moment of my life. I had no idea what was in front of me, but I just knew that this was, this was something much bigger than me. As that door was closing and we were taxiing down the runway, we were getting ready to take off, the engines start gaining power, and we're gaining altitude, and I just feel my weight just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into my seat. And it's becoming really real that what I'm about to do uh, is really going to be it wasn't just a minor disruption, it was a huge disruption. But I remember breaking through the, cr- through the clouds and then eventually leveling off. And I remember seeing the, the thing that I can remember most was the softness of the clouds and the deep blue that I could see to the east. That was basically all I could see. And at that moment... The anxiety and terror of having to testify before Congress was replaced with calm and conviction that I was doing the right thing. I didn't know it at the time, but at that point, I knew that what was about to happen, I was here uh, for a reason. And I remember thinking, I think Kat even said it this morning, is that if I didn't step forward and if I didn't come forward about my own personal stories that no one knew about, then who was going to do it? And if it wasn't now, then when? And so that was really the, I, 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 that was really that marker point in time that I said that this is, this is something that, that is an adventure that um, has a path that I, is unknown to me um, at this point. I will be talking, I'll be coming back to the day that I testified as well as the day after, but I want to give you a little bit of background uh, on um, who I am and a little bit of, of uh, I need, of how I got to the job of being fire chief at Yosemite National Park. I grew up in a middle-class family in uh, northern uh, Illinois. I went to school at Northland College uh, in Ashland, uh, Wisconsin. But uh, I have always had this sense of of spirit and adventure. And so when Graham was talking about Knowles and John about Outward Bound, or Knowles and Outward Bound, that that was who I am, is this spirit of adventure uh, because I really feel that that connection uh, between doing something physically very hard and demanding that you may not think that you can do yourself uh, really strengthens your resolve uh, in the workforce. And I think that I, I'm really trying very hard with our own work, workforce to realize that grit, perseverance, and determination is really at the core of who I am and how I develop uh, my own employees. The, uh, while at Northland, how many of you, how many of you actually feel like you kind of had a misspent youth? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. So when I left my hometown and went to school up in northern Wisconsin, I was really searching for something. I didn't really know uh, exactly what, uh, what was going to really make 
uh, me feel good about my work and, and the outdoors. I found uh, Northland, and I had some friends of mine who uh, were living in a teepee. And I thought that this was something that I really wanted to try. I wasn't sure. I've never done anything like this before, but I did a lot of research and a lot of uh, study on what it was going to take to to actually live in a teepee in northern Wisconsin in 30 below weather. Now, my parents, on the other hand, thought that they were just waiting for that call that they'd find me frozen uh, in my teepee, or better yet, that I was working on some sequel to Jack London's To Build a Fire. It's like how to live in a teepee in northern Wisconsin in 30 below weather. But I, I look back at this particular time in my life, uh, in my early 20s, and I continue to go back to this moment of the, the grit, perseverance, and determination that I had to live and really experience uh, a very, very difficult uh, situation in my life. And that really was the, I, I continue to anchor back to that moment in time when I'm really looking, uh, when I'm in really difficult situations. Um, so it really provided me with, um, uh, through, throughout my entire career, is that, is that anchor point of, of living and persevering in, uh, in living in a teepee. Okay, opportunities and challenges of life. When I graduated uh, Northland College, one of the, I, I had an opportunity to um, uh, take a job at, at Grand Canyon National Park. Um, I was absolutely thrilled uh, and could not, was in disbelief that my first job was uh, at Grand Canyon as a, as a national park ranger. Um, I knew that this was something that, that I was terribly excited about and just could hardly, hardly wait to start my adventure at, at 23. My parents bought me a 72 Dodge pickup that you see in the photo there, and I put all my worldly belongings, including my teepee poles, uh, on top of my truck, and I felt like um, there, I just, there was just no better uh, uh, opportunity to, um, uh, for me to uh, work at Grand Canyon. But it took me a, a couple of days to drive out there. Growing up in the Midwest, I had never been west of the Mississippi, and I had never been west of the Rockies. So when I was traveling, uh, the, everything seemed new to me, and, and I was so grateful that that I, I was on this uh, exploration. Um, I would soon come to find out that a lot of people would tease me about my truck because they saw the hood up more than it was down. Um, so I really did get an opportunity to uh, really um, kind of work uh, and, and know uh, a better skill set for being able to, to pro, uh, troubleshoot. But as I approached Grand Canyon, how many of you have been to Grand Canyon? Oh, quite a few. Do you remember that moment when you first saw Grand Canyon? I drove up in the fall of 86, and it was fall, early winter of 86, and I had never smelled uh, juniper before, and it was cold enough for people to be using juniper to be to, for wood heat, and to this day, I still associate that smell, that sweet smell of juniper with Grand Canyon, and seeing Grand Canyon for the first time. Um, it, was, uh, it was pretty spectacular. So for a 23-year-old <clears throat> growing up in the Midwest, um, becoming a park ranger, being there on my own, 
was truly uh, 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 something that I, 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 I was uh, very, very grateful for. But <clears throat> it was also this time um, that I experienced um, two different situations with sexual harassment. Uh, and, and I'm here to talk to you about this because I want you to understand how difficult these situations were for me personally and, and for a lot of reasons that I hear why women don't report some of these incidents. So I was probably at Grand Canyon no more than uh, less than a year, and I was at a training course, and there I was at in an apartment by myself, and of course the apartment was uh, facing out um, towards the woods. And I had my um, bathroom window open, um, oh, I don't know, about you know, eight to ten inches. I was getting up really early, and I was um, getting ready to take a shower. I walk in the bathroom, um, getting ready to, to walk in the shower, and I see the shadow, like, pass by my window. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of a little odd. So I, um, I got jumped in the shower behind the curtain, this particular individual stops and the shadow comes back towards my window. And now I can, I can, see, I can see what's going on I'm behind, the, behind the shower. This particular gentleman, he uh, bends over and is peering in my window uh, looking for me. And I uh, am behind the curtain. And I can see him, and he can see me. And at that point, he knew that he um, had been identified. And believe it or not, he was actually in a Park Service uniform. So that made it even that much more difficult for me, that it was actually a, a, a fellow um, um, uh, park ranger. I did tell two supervisors. I was very upset. They gave me four choices. They said, you can file a criminal complaint, you can file an EEO complaint, you can ask for an apology, or you can do nothing. So mind you, this is, a, this is the 80s. There was really no policy in place for reporting sexual harassment. So there was no mandatory reporting. I am a young woman, 23 years old. My financial independence and my ability to maintain the integrity of my career overrode any sort of idea of even complaining or filing a complaint. What's the preservation of my career and my financial independence was more important than filing a, a complaint. But I did say I would be willing to meet with this particular individual for an apology. So imagine the four of us in the, in the room. It's even kind of still hard for me to talk about it uh, today. He did apologize. He said that it never happened before, uh, and it'll never happen again. And why wouldn't I believe him? Right? Well, guess what? They were looking for a peeping Tom. There was an investigation going on at Grand Canyon. And because I said, I don't, I don't want to report this, it, it thwarted uh, the investigative process of trying to find this particular uh, individual. And because I said I didn't want to report anything, he had left the park before um, the investigation, before they could actually um, find him and investigate him. He goes to another park and continues to victimize other women and gets moved again and again and then just retires here um, uh, from his federal career not more than about four or five years ago. 
So I, um, this, was, this has had a huge effect on me in terms of how we hold people accountable. And, and that, for me, is the one thing that is why I felt so compelled um, to come forward, not just because of some, things, some other things that were happening in contemporary times, but also the fact that we really do need to hold perpetrators accountable and not feel like we, like as victims, that we have to remain silent. <clears throat> so uh, at Grand Canyon is where I started my fire career. I started my fire career in the late 80s. Uh, to this day, I'm still in the field um, quite a bit. But I still remember that moment of time that I had that epiphany to say, this is what I want to do for a living. Can you imagine being 23, 24 years old, 25 years old, flying in a helicopter across Grand Canyon, getting dropped off in a very remote place? Maybe some of you have no desire to do anything like that. Um, I did. I, I was, this is something that I thought this is, this is really exciting for me to feel like the, I, my boots are on the ground with Grand Canyon under my feet. Absolutely loved it and said that that was, um, that was what the job is that, that I wanted to do. So I was super grateful that I was really totally found a job that I just really, really loved. But it was also at this time that I felt victimized again by a stalker who was taking pictures of me um, while I was working uh, out in the field on, on fires. And he would have my picture above his visor in his work truck uh, showing other people. Um, now, does that rise to the level of sexual harassment? It's behaviors that are unacceptable uh, in the workforce. And we all have to kind of define um, what that is. But the, the, the fact that that was going on, I just felt like I couldn't stay at Grand Canyon anymore. I had to leave. And the reason I tell you these two situations is that I want you to think about the threat to the talent that you're bringing in to your companies and your corporations and your nonprofits. That you don't even, you may not even know that this is going on, um, but how much of a threat it is for top talent that when you start losing talent, um, you may not even know the root cause of why some of this is happening. So I left and I went to um, uh, the US Forest Service where I worked there for 16 years and then came back to uh, um, the Park Service in 2006. Bring it towards contemporary time is the, what I started seeing in the news media in 2015-2016. Uh, um, out here, no one can hear you scream. It was about sexual harassment and the women that were exposed to sexual harassment by the boatmen uh, in, at Grand Canyon. I believe that this was kind of the first the first visceral moment and the moment of rage that I was feeling that I cannot believe this is still going on today at the same park that I experienced my um, two episodes of harassment um, at Grand Canyon. So it, it, it was just something that I just felt like I, I'm, I'm very interested now to see how our, our agency is going to handle this. Um, there was a letter that came out that said zero tolerance for sexual harassment and you're all, you all get to take sexual harassment training online. How good is that? Um, so those two, those two things are also like, it's an obligatory response when these things happen you know, by top leadership, but it doesn't go far enough. It's obligatory that you have to do these things, but you actually have to really dig down deeper and find the root cause of, of what's going on. 
And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And in uh, 16, uh, one of our senior leaders in the National Park Service also testified uh, regarding this particular incident before the same committee that I testified on. And when I hear the term zero tolerance from one of our senior leaders, I knew for a fact that our senior leaders you know, knew about uh, my particular perpetrator and, and as this person kept um, getting promoted um, through the National Park Service, that it was really important for me um, to come forward, that that was, I, I, I really felt that um, compelled that I actually had to say something. So um, I, uh, on September 22nd of 2016, I uh, testified as a, as a witness to my sexual harassment experiences in the National Park Service. And granted, this is not unique to the National Park Service, right? This is happening in academia, in film industry. Uh, it's happening in um, um, other government agencies. But it just so happens that this, is, this was uh, my opportunity to tell my story. Uh, that morning, when uh, before the testimony actually started. So the testimony was to begin at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They, they moved it from 9 and moved it to 1. I, uh, I found myself in the courtyard of the Rayburn building, which was the committee that was going to uh, host our hearing. And I just knew that I had to have that, that peaceful time to just gather my thoughts because in less than four hours... Uh, C-SPAN and um, social media was about to take off. Um, people kind of knew what I was going to do. They really didn't know exactly what I was going to talk about. Um, but they did know that the title of the testimony on um, September 22nd was um, titled uh, Misconduct and Mismanagement uh, in the National Park Service. So it had to do with Grand Canyon and also with um, um, uh, biases and hostile work environment at Yosemite where, where I was working. But that morning, I had to take the time to collect my thoughts and really understand the magnitude of what I was about to talk about and know that the next day, September 23rd, my life would be very different. So to try to reconcile that, after 34 years of of being in a very powerful position and in a very exciting career that I still love to this day, I, I felt like I, I pushed in every single chip. I pushed in all my chips for this one day. And, and the reason I felt so compelled to do that is that I, I, I had to speak out on my own, my own experiences, but the thing that really got me the most is it was still happening and young women were still... Um, being victimized um, to this day, that we had to change our culture. We have to be able to understand that these behaviors that have been normalized for so many years and have been part of our culture has to change. Not only do the women want them to change, but there's a lot of men out there that want to see this changed as well. And so it was for them and for their daughters and sisters. And, and granted, I'm mostly dealing with a gender uh, uh, issue here, but race also comes into this as well uh, when you're feeling oppressed and, and um, dismissed uh, within your own uh, work culture. Um, so it felt like I had to do this. I had to do this in terms of making this, this seismic shift, and I think it was really not just a seismic, but it was a tsunami 
you know, shift that, that our agency really had to uh, uh, endure and go through. But I'm very proud of the National Park Service. I'm very, I'm very proud to still be working for them. The thing that I believe that I am so grateful for is the guy, one of our senior leaders that I was sitting next to testifying with is now our leader at Yosemite National Park. And I'm so grateful to this gentleman because it was, he single-handedly uh, fundamentally changed uh, a lot of policy and, and support in terms of this culture change and culture shift in recognizing the, the magnitude of sexual harassment. Uh, he uh, put in place two ombudsmen. There was a prevalence survey that, that went out to all employees, one in 10 had experienced sexual harassment within the last 12 months. Four in 10 had experienced some kind of sex uh, uh, harassment based on race, ageism, uh, religion, uh, gender. So it, we knew that we had a problem. So hats off to uh, the Park Service and the leadership at that time that they took this seriously enough to, to make some changes. One of the things that um, I'm particularly grateful for in the Wildland Fire Organization is our ability to really think about how we can accelerate training and development for underrepresented um, groups. And I, I'm pretty active in, in relevancy, diversity, and inclusion. And I always like kind of talking about, you know, diversity is something that we can see, and inclusion is something that we can feel. And so this is, this is so far shifted from our, our thought of affirmative action, EEO, but this really is about truly valuing all of our employees and really feeling very inclusive. So the diversity of thought is important, uh, but really bringing these different uh, individuals um, to the table that are not like us. And we have to be deliberate uh, about recognizing um, our differences and, and how we can really promote that um, going forward. Uh, this is a women in fire training exchange. This just started about two years ago. And uh, I am really beginning to see that it's really about the grassroots movements, about the things that we can put in place um, within our own agencies and within our, within our own companies to really start thinking about, ask me, ask, ask, the, ask the groups that are underrepresented, you know, what are the most, um, what do you think would be the most value or the most uh, uh, productive for for our company and for our culture. And so what we did here is that we didn't exclude men, but women only make up 10% of the wildland firefighting uh, individuals, and men make up 90%. So we deliberately selected for 90% women and 10% men, and we had participants from all over the world. We had women and men from Canada, Australia. I don't think we had anybody from New Zealand, uh, Portugal, uh, so we think that this is a model that um, could be very, very beneficial, especially when you're someone like me who um, I don't have a peer group of, of women. They're just, I love the men that I work with, but I, I don't have a peer group um, of women. And so this, is, this was the second year, first and second year um, that we had this training, and last year we hosted it at Yosemite National Park. Um, very, very well received. Uh, but again, there's people on the other side that'll say, why are we developing these special programs just for women? Well, it's not just for women, but the cool thing about this, the really interesting thing about this is that the men that showed up really 
wanted to be champions and want to be champions for, uh, for diversity and inclusion in throughout our, our entire uh, organization. So it was, it was an opportunity for them to really kind of peek behind the, the, the curtain, if you will, about the gender issues that, that we're faced with in, in, wild, in the Wildland Fire Organization. Speaking up, it's not easy. It's not something that I ever uh, aspired to put on my resume. And it's definitely not, I didn't think that it was going to get me a job or a better job or a better promotion. Uh, and I knew it was going to be uh, disruptive. Um, but I also feel an intense obligation to be part of the solution. So when you decide to take something like this on, um, people do look to you uh, for guidance and leadership and, and understanding of, of uh, what's next. What's next? We've been through the, the Me Too, the Time's Up, and now I'm beginning to work with some very key women <clears throat> outside of the federal government uh, in all these other dist distant uh, um, uh, industries. And we're having this conversation about <clears throat> what's next. How, how, do we take, how do we take this forward in a very productive way um, that really addresses some of the things that, that has been taboo and has been very difficult to talk about um, for many, many years, many, many generations. And <clears throat> very simple acronym, um, uh, uh, ACE, Awareness, Communication, um, Education. And a couple of these really aren't going to cost you a whole lot of money. And, and the awareness piece is um, I, would, I would challenge you that do not think that just because you, don't, you are not hearing anything that's going on in your company or your organization that you're immune to, to harassment type of situations. And I'll just use the general term, you know, harassment. Um, and it could take many, many forms. Um, sexual harassment is only one piece of it. But I think what we're really, what we're really geared toward is we need, we need to dig down deep in our organizations, and we need to be able to have these conversations with individuals um, in our organizations. How do you do that? Doesn't hurt to, for the senior executive person to find what Kat was talking about this morning, an undercover boss, uh, take, in, take individuals aside, um, ask them, hey, what's it been like for you as a woman firefighter? Um, what are some things that you think that, that we could be, be doing better? So it's that awareness of, of how, how much is it, what's going on. So don't, the point there is don't think that it's not happening to you. Um, given everything that's going on um, throughout the last year, year and a half, uh, there's probably opportunities for, for a lot of us for a lot of improvement. Uh, once you get through that awareness, the communication, there's a, of being able to provide leaders' intent from the most senior level. The more that you talk about it and, and provide opportunities for communication, the less scary that it, that it becomes for people. And one of the things that we've been doing that tends to work fairly well, again, we kind of talk about creating safe spaces, is, is small group interactions and dialogues. And you don't have to you know, get really heavy with people on the initial uh, communication to really create that that. Uh, environment of, of uh, conversation between individuals in your in your company, but the most important piece of that is get people talking, because people are going to start expressing and and describing to you things that 
uh, have happened in the workforce or things that they've seen happen in the workforce. And that is a part of, of really establishing um, that, that fact that you, you do want to see this culture change. And, and it's hard to believe that even in this day and age that some of the uh, inappropriate behavior is still going on. But how do you know that it's inappropriate if you're not having uh, really open um, communication? I kind of put education and training uh, in there as, as the last piece of that because people really do want to be part. Uh, they do want skills. They, the thing that I'm finding out now is that if you think about a life where you know kids coming out of, of high school and the high school bullying and the, the fraternities and the sororities, and then we bring in uh, individuals in their 20s, do you think they're ready for opportunities to really behave themselves well, or do you think that there's do you think there's an ability to really kind of create a, a more open environment? Um, so give that some consideration in terms of what you can do to provide education and training to really be more engaged with your staff. Um, the uncivil servant, uh, there's, there's all sorts of um, um, team building type of uh, uh, opportunities out there. How many of you have done team building sessions? within your, with, okay, good. I just I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she said, yeah, you know, we did a, a team building session and I thought, oh, that's great, how did it go? Um, they were in a group of about 10 or 12 people and there was a bunch of cards that were put on the table and everybody had to pick a card and they had to actually talk about their behaviors and how they actually supported uh, these behaviors in a team building type of session. And um, the, uh, the one guy picked up a card, he looks at it, and it says teamwork. So ah, that's not me. Throws back the card and picks another one. <laughs> so we know we have individuals out there that are really looking for leadership and they really you know, would like that opportunity for, um, uh, for conversation and training. So whatever you can do in your, in your work environment to create that, that, that safe space for training and education for your employees, it's well worth the time. The cost, the alternative, is that once it gets to uh, uh, your HR department, your human resources department, and now it's into a grievance and a lawsuit, there's a huge cost to that. So think about what you can actually do ahead of time in terms of uh, preventing um, those, that, those uh, threats to your organization. And then lastly, I want you to think about um, how did we get into this mess? You know, how did we get here? Uh, this isn't something that's going to happen that's not that's going to happen overnight. These changes aren't going to happen overnight. So I'm a very, very patient uh, person. But I also think about uh, who is going to be, who benefits and who is harmed if we fail. So think about that, that, that you are in charge of an organization now that um, our greatest capital is people. And the positions that you're in, in senior leadership positions, it's a tremendous sense of power and influence that you have uh, over other people to really create an opportunity for everyone in your organization um, to succeed. The, 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 the war on um, top talent is alive and well. 
you want to keep those individuals, you want them in a healthy environment, and you want them to succeed to their, to their greatest uh, potential that they had, that they have when they were a 23-year-old uh, young person entering your workforce as a, as a park ranger. Um, covet that and, and use your power and influence to really um, create an environment that's really welcoming and inclusive to, to everyone in your organization. Boy, that's a really good question. Were my colleagues supportive? Um, I'll tell you this. There's three groups, right? Uh, and I didn't tell you this part of the story, but within Yosemite, the, the senior leader retired, uh, apologized within three days, and then retired, announced his retirement a week later. And then his wife uh, announced her retirement three days later. Big stories. All, you know, a lot of this stuff is on the Internet. It's on C-SPAN as well. But there's the group that's very resentful. They were like, you know, this is Aaron Dirty Laundry. Uh, we're the white hat uh, organization. So it felt very embarrassing and very humiliating for, for a lot of people. But then on the other hand, on the other extreme, you had, I had a ton of people. My phone literally blew up with text messages and emails and saying, oh my god, you told my story. But they couldn't come forward. And they're still silent to this day, but were able to at least tell me that I am so glad that you were bold and, and had the bravery to come forward. And then there's the people in the middle that, too much drama, I just want to do my job, I'm here to do my job. But over time, I think people are really beginning to realize that this is a very serious issue and, and the threats that that poses to you know, fiscal capital and human capital but initially it was very, very difficult. I actually had to stay away from the park for about 10 days or two weeks before I could even gather my thoughts and then make my connections back and what I call an integration back into the park. It was very, it was very difficult. And to this day is still, still difficult for some people for sure. What is the most common important purpose between me and my team? When I look back on why I did what I did, I felt that this type of behavior is threatening them and that I had a duty to act in terms of trying to eradicate uh, uh, bullying, a hostile work environment, uh, intimidation, uh, humiliation. And so my, my goal for what I'm doing is really to create the next generation. And, and I, I am in a very, very important position to support them. Um, so I, I leave them with better skills to manage the harder, the, the harder communication skills that they've never had to really do before. So this really opened the door to more open and transparent uh, communications with myself uh, in the team, in my team, and to me, that, that I feel that that's the greatest gift that any senior leader can give to their team is it's not about me; it's about those individuals that are coming up behind me that'll eventually take my place. That they now have the skills that they need to be better managers as they're developing young people coming up through the organization. Thank you all. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.